a lot of the cheese that is consumed in France is rich in microbes and bacteria because it's raw milk cheese. It's not treated. It's not processed. It's left with all the natural benefits in there. So when we consume it, those microbes go into our body and we have a much more diverse microbiome. And once we have a more diverse microbiome, the microbes break down the food for us differently. So if we consume food and we have a very diverse microbiome, we actually extract more nutrients from the food we eat. All right, food splinter podcast. Gonna talk real fast. Spitting food facts while we be no and relax. How to use that salt. What it means to brew with malt. If you need a new food pack, yeah, one that leaves an impact. Tune into food splinter. Tune into food. Food, food. Tune into food splainer. Tune into food. Food. We got the food splainer podcast. Gonna talk real fast. Spitting food facts while we be nowhere relaxed. How to use that salt. What it means to brew with malt. If you need a new food fact, yeah. Our next guest is a TikTok sensation and video food content creator with over 100,000 followers. And he's a brilliant filmmaker, a food activist, a sourdough bread making enthusiast, and happens to be Jamie Oliver's food assistant. So, Julius Fiedler, how are you? Hello, thank you so much for um, having me on this. I'm really excited. I'm really well. How are you? Oh, I'm, I'm amazing. I just want to know how bad I butchered your name. Yeah, actually, you did a really good job. It can be quite a hard name, but yeah, it's Julius Feedless, and I think it sounded exactly like that. Well done. Oh, thank you very much. I should practice my German accent. <laughs> you smashed it. Maybe I have a, a career in the film industry and I could play a German part. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Go for that. <laughs> <laughs> so awesome. Thanks for joining us. I was wondering what, so you are very much into food and what brought you to become so knowledgeable about it? Like I've watched several of your videos and you just seem to really have a very in-depth background of food knowledge. I mean, food, it's so massive. There's so much to it. And I find the more I dive into food, um, the more opportunities open up. I personally, I don't come from a culinary background at all. So I haven't gone to culinary school. My family has never worked um, in the food industry. I actually recently did find out that my great grandfather ran a restaurant in Berlin. And my mom, sometimes she recalls memories of playing in the corridors of the restaurant as a child. But uh, the restaurant is still there, but it's now in different hands. So I grew up in a family with not an immediate contact to the food industry. My mom was a great cook. I probably owe my food, my love to food um, to her, but it was pretty much a setup like in many homes. So she did most of the cooking. My dad would sometimes do the barbecue. But yeah, I just, I think I just fell in love with food over time. I was a terrible eater as a child. <laughs> I, Were you picky? Honestly, I was really picky. I think I only ate pasta, to be honest. So oh, my no. <laughs> it's still, it's still my favorite food. But that's pretty much all that I would eat. And then over time, I slowly opened up to different flavors. And I think really it just took off when, um, when, I, when I left home and then started baking with sourdough, as you mentioned earlier. Just because then it came as a fascination for food. 
Um, I think sourdough is a really good example of being in tune with nature because um, if you bake with sourdough in its most simple in its most simple form, you have one ingredient: you have flour. To that, you add water and then a little bit of salt, and suddenly you can create a loaf of bread, which tastes better than anything you'd ever buy in a supermarket. I agree. And when I yeah, and when I when I noticed that potential, I just dived into all those different topics. So it started with sourdough, and then it came into fermentation and pickling and general cooking. So um, yeah, it started from there. Um, a general interest and then it's loads of reading watching different food shows um, like I don't know if you've ever heard of the British food show Two Greedy Italians it was one of the first food shows I watched it's with um, Gennaro Contaldo and Antonio Caluccio who are both from Italy but they live in the UK okay. um, and they travel back to Italy to see how their country has changed over the last 50 years and it's, um, it's a really fascinating show because they show their love for Italian food, but you also get to see how food changed with processed food coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, and it opens your eyes in so many ways. So that, yeah, that has been really inspiring. And I think from there, it just got more and more. So um, I didn't stop exploring and yeah, still, I'm still doing it now. That, that's awesome. I have never heard of that show, actually. Is it, it's on, really a, fun. Is it on a streaming device? Um, it's, that's a good question. I, it should be. So there's, I don't know if you be, know BBC which is really big in the UK. Um, it's the number one broadcaster. There's only one show I can name. <laughs> Go on. Wait, can I name it or not? Oh my gosh, it's right there. It has a telephone booth. Oh, very British. So <laughs> I think you're in the oh, right wait, direction. That, yeah. <laughs> wait, no, what's it called? Come on, you've got to know what I'm talking about. I mean, not giving me too many hints. Okay. The telephone booth. Oh, wait, you're right. That's to me, that's very much like what the show is about. But okay, moving on. Moving on. <laughs> I'll, I'll come back. I'll come back to that one. Yeah. It's Sherlock Holmes. Duh. So that's really cool. Tell me more about this family restaurant. That So actually, um, last Christmas, that's when I really found out about it. I knew my mom sometimes told stories, as I said, of her um, being in that restaurant. But I never really knew about it. And then um, my grandma is moving place at the moment. She's moving home. Uh, so we were going through old family pictures and my mom found all, all those family pictures of the restaurant. And it's, um, it's in Berlin. It's in, a, in an area of Berlin called Schöneberg. Um, and he used to run the restaurant and um, serve to Queen Elizabeth at some point. Which is really oh, that's amazing. Cool. Yeah, so that's really amazing. That, that, that was a surprise. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. Yeah, but then, as I said, unfortunately, that is not in the family now anymore. Um, So my mom moved away mm -hmm. from Berlin. I grew up in a completely different area um, in Germany, more in the center um, and west. But yeah. That's awesome. At least we have that memory. So so it is is deep in your blood then? Maybe. Yeah, let's say that. (laughs) Okay. So, you know, you already mentioned sourdough starter. I'm glad you, you mentioned that because... I wanted to know more about sourdough to our listeners. How do you make a simple sourdough starter? How do you tend to it? How do you feed it? How do you show it love and make it better? And you've been using the current one for three years. Yeah, I think. Okay, so (laughs) what happens to a sourdough starter? Does it get better? Does it just age with time like a fine wine? Or how would you explain that? Like, how does it not just rot? Yeah, I mean, it certainly grows with you because um, when you start, usually you don't really have to know how to create a proper loaf of bread. So it takes time. And as you improve your technique and as you improve your knowledge around sourdough, the sourdough starter does get better. In theory, um, once you have an active sourdough starter, it works as a leavening agent. So it, it gives rice and volume to a bread and it makes flour 
and water edible into something, I mean, not only edible into something very delicious. But yeah, so what is sourdough? Sourdough is basically, you, you start with bacteria that are all around us anyway. So you have bacteria in the flower, you have bacteria on our hands, you have um, bacteria in the air, but they're quite dormant until you combine flour and water. Um, to create a sourdough starter, you need flour and water and you need time. So it takes roughly five to eight days, depending on the climate, etc., um, to create your first sourdough starter. And what happens during that time is that you, you feed the sourdough starter every single day and you basically create an active um, leavening agent that rises and falls in volume in a predictable way. So it's a lot of different chemical terms or a lot of different complex terms, but it's basically, it's wild yeast and lactic bacteria um, okay. that, that do lactic the work. bacteria. Yeah, that do the work in the sourdough. And um, as a side product, when they feed on the sugars in the flour, they create lactic acids. That's the sourness of the sourdough starter. And they also create carbon dioxide, which gives it rice. So once you trained it into that culture that you can use in baking, you use that in a batch of dough. And then over time, that process happens. The carbon dioxide develops, the acidity develops, and you get flavor and rice to the dough. And then when you put it into the oven, it rises into a beautiful loaf. I think that sourdough is easily my most favorite type of bread. The more sour, the better for me. Yeah, it's, it's such a fascinating process. What I love is that you can control it in so many ways. Exactly. If you like it more sour, you can leave the fermentation to last a little bit longer. If you like it a little bit on the sweeter side, you can leave it a little bit shorter. Um, so you can really scale it to your liking, but also it has endless possibilities because if you use a different flour, the fermentation speeds up. If you use um, mm -hmm. whole wheat flour compared to um, white flour, you get a completely different loaf. So whole wheat flour is much denser. It also has a higher hydration. So more of the water gets absorbed and it speeds up the fermentation again. But again, all of those things impl uh, impact the flavor, impact the fermentation time. So you can get really creative with it. And it's a really good playground to start getting excited about food. Science is incredible. Yeah. Do you have any baking influences that you want to give a shout out to? I honestly, so for me, it started with the um, Tartine Bakery. I don't know if you know yep. it in San Francisco yet, mm -hmm. because they have a book on sourdough. I think they now have three, um, but I started baking sourdough with their first book that came out and it's really reliable. So if you want to get into sourdough, I can definitely recommend that one. There's a theory in there. So you learn all about the process, which I think is really important because you have to understand why the um, dough rises, why the certain bacteria react in a certain way to a certain flower. And once you know that, you can... Um, really easily react to different temperatures to different flowers you're using etc so yeah start with that it's very cool i saw that you were selling your own sourdough starter for people intimidated to make it at home so it's really interesting you have this video showing how to do it on tiktok but you basically spread some of your sourdough starter thin on a piece of parchment paper and you just like let it dehydrate and then you blitz it into a powder and then people can buy that. And then you have an explanation video on how to rehydrate that with water and, and more flour. How did you learn that technique? That's, that's very cool. I have never seen that before. Yeah, so again, I mean, exactly. It can be quite intimidating to create your own starter. And it does take time. And sometimes things go wrong or you don't have time to look after it. And then um, it's all about the acidity in the sourdough starter. So once that takes over, it might be that your starter dies 
um, which you obviously don't want. So yeah, you have to you have to give it a lot of attention. Um, so to help people skipping that step and be able to bake with sourdough without maybe having to first create a sourdough starter because once it's active you can keep it alive really easily you can mm -hmm. store it in the fridge and feed it once a week um, and it's very very resistant so yeah to skip that first process of creating your sourdough starter i just thought maybe there's a way of um, of sending out the one that i worked with for more than three years by now and in its essence you're just freezing the activity by drying it out so that's why you spread it out really thinly what happens is it takes out all the hydration so all the water content is gone so it doesn't spoil mm -hmm. and um, once it's dried you can keep it for a really long time so people say that it lasts for more than a year i haven't i've tried six months um haven't gone further than that so um yeah that's why i say to people who purchase a sourdough starter it's, it has a shelf life of six months but probably it lasts for much longer than that but what's really nice about it is that when you have it you can easily rehydrate it by just adding a little bit of water and fresh flour the active bacteria that um, have been dormant are back alive and they just continue their activity. It's wild. It's I so cool. It. Yeah, it's, it's honestly, it's such a rich topic. And uh, the more you the more you learn about it, the more um, you get excited about trying different things. So is that like an experimental phase for you? Just trying to see if that would work or not? With the dry, drying out the sourdough starter? Yeah. Um, I mean, that, yeah, that's something I came across once as a tip on how to create backups for your sourdough starter. Because again, once you have your sourdough starter and once you've been baking with, with it for a while, you get quite attached to it. You don't want it to, um, you don't want it to die in your fridge. Or actually what happened no. once was, I so sometimes because it's um, dependent on temperature, I kept my sourdough starter in the oven to just give it a little bit of a boost on a really uh -huh. low temperature. So the oven was just preheated. I switched it off. It was like 30, 40 degrees in there. So it um, nicely, it gets a nice rice. Um, and then my girlfriend, she wanted to bake something so she without looking into the oven she preheated the oven full work. oh no <laughs> and that was you know i didn't have a backup at that time it was just my only batch of sourdough and i've been baking with it for two years at that time and i came she killed your child <laughs> i came downstairs and i looked into this oven and there was a small plastic pot, pot melting away on the sides and inside oh, there was no. a partly baked sourdough <laughs> so I, I took it out of the oven I scraped off the top of the uh, baked sourdough starter and inside there was still a little bit of liquid left and I could revive it from that. So as I said, it is really resistant. Wow, um, very resistant. <laughs> it's really resistant. Honestly, it survives even those extremes. But um, yeah, that's when I started creating backups. So I looked into how can you multiply your sourdough starter? How can you have backups if something goes wrong? And you um, drying out is just one of them. So you can freeze it as well. Um, you can, as I said, you can keep it in the fridge um, and you don't have to feed it even once a week and you can feed it a little bit less than that. But as long as you know roughly how a sourdough starter works, you can um, quite easily keep it alive really well. It's really hopeful for people intimidated to do it. It's kind yeah. of dummy proof, would you say? If Exactly. So when you get a sourdough starter working, um, it is because when you know that process, you're pretty much there. That's all you need to know to get started. Then you can create um, backups. You can multiply your sourdough starter, and that's actually where it comes from. You know, it started as a, as a, as a, as a thing that people could give around. So they would have their own sourdough starter. They would make a copy basically by just adding fresh flour and water, and then give it to their friends, and then they would start sourdough baking, and they would multiply their sourdough starter and continue that journey. So it's a really fun process. Amazing! I love it. So I want to kind of transition into how you got inspired to start the whole video content 
food cooking video. I don't even know what style of video you call these, but it's such a fascinating style of video where you are showing how to cook a dish from point A to point B and you are zooming in on the knife work and you are cutting it so that it's very engaging and keeps the 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 viewer engaged and then you have this perfect loop at the very end where I mean I've probably watched the same video three times in a row before I realized it was the same video <laughs> and so I think that people really like it and that explains your rapid f- growing following so like why did you get into that and how are you so good at it no thank you um i mean it's not of accident really i um again i didn't do culinary school i didn't do anything of that journey but i um actually studied film before starting out in the um, tv industry so i went to film school and after that wanted to do something with film or tv um but then you work as a freelancer quite often in that industry so i started doing different runner jobs on um, productions And in between, I applied for different roles. So one of those roles was a social media production job. And part of that application was to produce content that would be fit for Instagram and for TikTok. So I did two videos, one for Instagram, one for TikTok, and just started looking into TikTok content. Um, And there's certain styles that just popped up. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting that people can fit an entire dish, an entire lesson around that dish into just one minute or less. Mm -hmm. Um, So I started playing around with what style I could use or create to have my own voice, to have my own message and um, to once use it for that application, but then maybe also play around with it myself. Um, The application didn't work out, but um, I then started making my own videos and the first one did really well, which is, I mean, obviously it's not about the number, but that was quite motivating to just keep going and try it again. Um, And I haven't stopped since. Yeah, that's awesome. I know you have a following now and, and many fans, but I, I love it when you taste something delicious and you just you're like you slap, you <laughs> clap clap your fingers and you're like, mm. it's so funny. So, oh you know, for your fans listening, you got to say your 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 famous word. Come on. Wunderbar. Yeah. Come on. Say it. <laughs> say it again. Wunderbar. Oh, that's not the same uh, enthusiasm. It's not the same. OK, hold on. Hold on. Wunderbar. Okay, all right. Wunderbar. I'll give you. Okay. I'll give you a C plus on that. C plus. Oh no, I'll get. I'll get into it. I have. To, I need some. You should honestly. You should be here when I record them. I say them like fifty times, and it's an oh, absolute really? agony. It's an absolute. Oh, the clap! My, it drives my girlfriend insane because I. Oh, I, I bet. She she sits at the other end of the room trying to work, and there I am standing in front of a camera clapping five hundred times like a maniac. Um, hey, it matters. Try- you got to get that perfect <laughs> clap. You know, it has to be the right clap. That's awesome. And, and that's another thing. People don't realize how much work and effort goes into these videos. It's quite, yeah, it's quite, I mean, you start them out, you know, the first video takes an hour, but then with every video, you get more critical and you start seeing things that you haven't seen before. So yep. um, you put more work into them, but it's also, I mean, it's, I really enjoy making them because it challenges me a lot to think about recipes, to think about how to actually show certain parts of recipes, because you don't think about that necessarily as you make them. So I really, push, uh, yeah, I really enjoy the process. Would you say it makes you a better chef? I, I think so, because you also you think about how translatable it is to other people who would make it, maybe make it at home, which also challenges you again to look into certain concepts. So if you think about turning something solid into something liquid or the other way around, you have to really understand the chemical process behind that. 
um, to be able to explain it. So you always do a little bit of research. And once you understand that, it, you can apply it to different things. So yeah, definitely. Yes, the chemical process, very important. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I'm getting into details here, but you know No, what? no, I, I was actually just saying process because I love the way Europeans say that. <laughs> Americans say process. Oh God, I, I mean, you're, yeah, that's my Try German it. accent, pro process. There you go. Is okay. it feel, does it feel like you're committing a crime? It does slightly, but then I think maybe, maybe it's just me rather than all Europeans, to be honest. <laughs> Well, there, we, we said them both, so that should make everyone happy. Brilliant, we've got it. All right. What I find really cool is that I'm guessing that these food blogger style videos kind of encouraged you to look more into production and made you become a lot more passionate about just plating and food presentation and videography. So you are Jamie Oliver's food stylist assistant. Like, that's super cool. Yeah, I mean, it's a really wonderful job. Again, that happened, well, not by accident, but it, I kind of um, merged into it because I started in TV. Um, I started in a very different part of the industry. But yeah, so do you want me to talk a little bit on how I got into that? Yeah, just go ahead and, and, and tell us how you became his food stylist assistant. Like, was it because of the TikTok videos? No, they came, they happened roughly at the same time, the videos and uh, the job transition. So he has a team of food stylists and starting as an assistant food stylist is the entry level role. The way that happened was that I actually started first as a runner on TV productions on his TV shows. So Jamie does quite a lot of TV shows here in the UK. I, I think you get quite a lot of them as well in the, um, in America. Yeah. So when I left uni, I, um, with my graduation project, I filmed at a dairy farm. Um, to just show the process of raw milk cheese being made from start to finish. So it started with the cows grazing in Somerset, which is in a region here in, in the UK. And then it finished with the finished wheels in the, um, in the cellar where they age. So we filmed that as a graduation project. But then two weeks after that, Jamie Oliver went there to film a piece for his TV show. And then a little while after that, I found a job application on, um, on Facebook to um, apply as a runner. So then I could use that connection that we were at the same dairy farm. I applied for the role and, um, and it worked out. So I started working as a runner on TV productions. And that's when you get to meet the food team. And I think on those productions, I was just always jealously eyeing what they were doing. Um, I was really mm -hmm. fascinated by that process of how much care went into all of the different dishes, how that setup works. It's so different to how it would work in a professional kitchen because you have to think about the TV aspect. And obviously you have Jamie on one end, but then you also have the food team preparing the different steps that he would be doing. Um, so I always kind of lingered around them and tried to soak up everything that they were doing. Um, and I was working on the TV productions for quite a while. So for the better part of a year, um, obviously lockdown was in between, but um, it gave me the chance to just learn from them quite a lot. Mm -hmm. And then I worked up the courage to approach the head of the team and, um, oh, and no. ask if she would, <laughs> oh God, ask if she would ever consider taking me on. Um, and she invited me for a chat into the office. And when I arrived there, she said, oh, what are you doing for the rest of the day? And then minutes later, I found myself upstairs with an apron, um, cleaning and preparing carrots for a live show that Jamie was doing that day with James Corden. Um, oh, snap. <laughs> yeah. And, and then after that, she asked me, can you make a gravy? And I said, okay, yeah, sure. So I made a gravy. Uh, and minutes, minutes after I was done with the gravy, it went straight into the studio and Jamie was pouring it over his beef wellington. And oh, that wasn't wow. a backup. 
And I thought, what, what would have happened? Oh God, what, what would I have done if the gravy would have worked out What if it was nice and chunky and like? Oh yeah, honestly. Oh, no. Okay, tell us how you made your. Tell us how you made your gravy. Good gravy. Good gravy. Good old fashioned voice crack. Because there's a lot of different ways. Yeah, I mean that gravy. So it's a gravy that you make with um, beef stock um, as as the liquid, which you then. Um, Do you make your roux first? Yeah, we actually no. So you what you do is you start with um, sautéing onions, and uh, you then I think it was brandy that I used. Um, you I actually don't know the English term. See, there we go. That, that's a problem sometimes with the translation barrier. But when you put when you set it on fire, <laughs> do help me out. Oh, flambé. You flambé. There we go. Yeah, the French term. But um, but um. Oh, so I you've... don't know. Is there a German <laughs> term? <laughs> Well, I yeah, flambien is pretty much the same. Oh, so I should flambien. have known it really. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so I um, flambéed the onions and then added the beef stock, reduced all of it. Um, and then instead of adding a roux, you, um, Jamie adds flour to it and cooks that out. Um, so that then thickens and you just um, strain it in the end. So it's, it's a, I mean, it's not the most complex process of making a gravy. But, um, oh, is that, a- is that his recipe? It is his recipe. So you oh, would... how did how did you know it, or did they tell you, or were they just like, was it like a cooking challenge? Make us a gravy. It better be good. No, I mean, so yeah, exactly. So she <laughs> she, she asked me to make a gravy, but then she, you 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 just asked what what kind of gravy are you after, and then um, she points you towards a certain recipe. So you do follow a recipe. You also do that for most of the job, um, but the the pressure was still there. It was full on. <laughs> oh man, I I, I love it cooking for some reason like as nervous as I am and as much of like a wreck I feel inside like I pretty much excel in cooking competitions it's just something like some people just work really well when they're nervous you know yeah I think a certain amount of pressure is definitely a good thing (laughs) it's really good I think it brings out the best in us well that's a fascinating story I'm glad you shared that has (laughs) the new job brought you like opportunities in in such I mean, it's it's one big opportunity just because um, you learn so much every single day. The job is really varied because just because Jamie does so many different things. So in that role, you don't only assist Jamie. Um, Jamie, I mean, he must be the busiest man I personally know. Um, he's always running around. So most of the time, what you're doing is you're assisting other food stylists. Um, and that could be for uh, pictures for a book that I've been taking that day, or it is in prep for the next TV show. Um, or it is for a um, live show that the cookery school is doing that day on Facebook. So it's always something else. Um, but because of that, you're always on your toes. You always do different recipes. You learn all of the different processes. You understand ingredients. Um, you have to go out and speak to the suppliers and um, source ingredients from them. So yeah, it's it's a massive opportunity just even because of that. But then also, of course, because you work next to people who've worked in that industry for so long. Right. And you you just soak up everything that Jamie is doing, which is incredible. So you got to give us the nitty gritty, okay? <laughs> is 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 Jamie Oliver a sweetheart? Is he really <laughs> funny, or is he like a scary man behind closed doors? Oh God, imagine! Uh, he is honestly he is the way he appears on TV, which is so nice to know. He is um he is such a caring person in real life. Um, so no matter in which part of the company you work. Um, he looks after you, which is um, which is such wow. a wonderful character trait, and um, it's commendable. Yeah, he he is he is funny. He's always um, he, he's always optimistic, and he has brilliant ideas. So 
although he's been in that industry he's been doing what he's doing for so long he always comes up with new concepts with new ideas and it's it's just really inspiring to be a part of it have you collaborated with him before like is he willing to hear your input and take your opinions so there are certain i mean most of it is quite planned out um so you come to a day and you know what you're doing um but when he's developing a new book which he is i mean he's bringing out a new book every year he does take an input so um you would be with him on the day that he's coming up with certain recipes um and sometimes he would check for input or he would see how um what inspired other people in a certain culinary direction etc and then he would um yeah definitely he would take that input on and maybe make it his own or see if it could inspire something he was thinking about Julius, we kind of brushed the surface on ferments earlier, and that is in the microbe world. But what exactly is a microbe? Would you associate that as being like atoms? Like, is it all around us? Is it ubiquitous? Yeah, absolutely. Microbes are definitely all around us. It's probably the thing that excites me most at the moment. Microbes, in the essence, it's they are bacteria, um, microorganisms. And exactly, they are all around us, but they have such a massive impact on everything we do, which I think we're just slowly waking up to. So it's such an exciting thing to learn about. I, I'm super happy to dive into a couple of things around microbes, if, if you're up for it. Oh, absolutely. Let's just take this where it wants to go. That's how I was hoping to transition this into a more like preeminent concept of both life and nature, um, because... It's very important. We talked about like your sourdough starter, how you have to tend to it and care to it and feed it. And in turn, that gives you something much more delicious and flavorful and worth the while. And wouldn't you say like the same thing applies to how we treat our environment? And if we put more love and effort into the earth, the results will multiply in abundance really in our favor. Yeah, exactly. I mean, microbes, as you said, they are everywhere. They're on the soil um, when it comes to farming but they're also in our own gut. And all of the concepts um, apply in the same way. So if we have healthy soil, we have healthier produce. If we have a healthier gut, we have a healthier body and mind. So exactly, if we look after microbes, that's really the key to health in both ways. And it's so deep and fascinating to understand those aspects because I don't think we really spend a lot of attention to how what we eat affects our microbes. There's a really fascinating book on that, actually, that I think everybody should read. It's called The Diet Myth by Tim Spector. And it's something that I read recently that just opened my eyes in so many new ways. So Spector goes on, or he starts, he he talks about microbes in in a larger scale. And he explains that rather than focusing on latest diets, we really need to understand our microbiome to live a healthier life. Because often I think it's easy to, or not easy, but often we, we look for a new diet to maybe cope with a certain aspect of health that we're trying to change. But we see that if we look after our microbes, that's actually probably the best change to our diet that we can make. Um, there's one fact in there in that book that, that really startled me. He mentions that the first medical mention of a food allergy occurred in 1912, which is a year the Titanic sank. And then the first food allergy documented in a medical journey happened in 1969 so 50 years after that more than 50 years after that so back then food allergies were still really really rare but today one in 20 children is now allergic to something food related 
So I think we really have to start thinking what changed or what happened. And in that book, you start realizing that what changed is our microbiome. And that is something that I find quite scary and that we really have to start reconsidering. Why did that change and what do we do to it to unfortunately destroy it um, or to make it less diverse in the in the past? It's terrifying, actually. You mentioned that documentary Kiss the Ground on Netflix and I watched it. And just, I forget who it was, but someone was mentioning how many kids are born with allergies or some sort of defect in their immune system where, you know, they're sick. They develop cancer as an infant and it's terrifying. And they said that it links back to Roundup chemicals and fertilizers being used on our crops. I don't even know what to say about that. Isn't that incredible? I mean, we... That is the problem with modern agriculture. Obviously, I, again, I don't come from an agricultural background, but I get really, really passionate about that topic because it seems to be that everything we're trying to do at the moment in, in normal agricultural farming is looking for yield, you know, to get more yield out of the same piece of ground year after year. But what we're really doing is, and I think you've done it, you've talked about this with, um, with Lee Jones on your previous podcast, um, it's such a fascinating podcast, by the way. Thank you. But what, what we're doing is we're stripping all the nutrients out of the soil. So mm-hmm. year after year, it's called monocultures. We're growing the same crop, the same sort of vegetables on the same piece of land. And we're stripping all of the nutrients out of that piece of land. And year after year, we're adding less nutrients or we're giving, getting less nutrients into the food we're growing out of it. And that in itself should already show us that something is wrong with that system. So our so, answer so wrong. Yeah, our answer is not to change the system. Our answer is to throw more fertilizers onto that same land to then somehow get those nutrients back in. But what we do is we end up with less nutritious soil and have to use even more fertilizers the next year. Um, and that's something that just it's so bizarre that that's maintained for so many years until we are finally slowly starting to change it through farmers like Lee Jones to to trying to save the, the soil. Yeah, yep. I mean, it's unbelievable. That, that honestly is the future. The future is not a new invention of, um, of a new, newly modified crop. The future is to be in tune with nature. I really believe that, that we have to go back to something um, that's been done for ages, but that created a soil that's rich enough to give us food that can actually feed us. Whereas some of the food that we're growing today, it seems, is stripped of all its... Um, of all its health benefits. It has absolutely no nutritional benefit no at nutrition. all. You're just eating something to put a, to, to fill your stomach. Yeah. And, I mean, yeah. And, but that's the thing. People don't know that they're not real. They think, Oh, vegetables are healthy. It, it's, it's not that simple. It's not that simple. And it has so many more aspects to that. Um, if you let, let's take a, let's take a simple courgette um, or zucchini. Oh. Do you call it courgette oh. or zucchini? <laughs> no, zucchini. I'm like, what are you, are you teaching me something new? <laughs> uh, let's take a zucchini then. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, a, a courgette. Could, yeah. I don't, where, where do people say courgette? It's a funny one. Um, it sounds like Corvette and I think those are cool cars. So let's, let's, <laughs> let's go with it. Let's zucchini. Okay, fine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> either one of them. So either of the two, which is the same okay. thing. Got <laughs> it. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Um, so let's say one of them is grown just for yield and the other one is grown on, um, on organic land without any chemicals. So one of them probably looks like the standard courgette or zucchini you would get in a store 
and we would consider normal, unfortunately, by now, because that's what we're used to, because we buy it um, from the supermarket. Whereas the other one probably looks slightly out of shape, maybe smaller, um, and maybe slightly uglier to our norms. But then um, we have so many differences. So you have the flavor. You obviously have the nutritious benefits, which we discussed, but you obviously also have the flavors, which chefs would go on about, rightfully so. One of them, the smaller organic one, probably tastes much richer than the other one. I think another one that's really important and that people sometimes don't talk about is the impact that the organic one had to the soil because you're creating a soil that is that has a root structure that it's much stronger. So if you have something um, disrupting that structure, that it be strong winds or floods or droughts, the root structure actually helps the soil to lift through that. So if you have a flood and you have a really rich root structure in that soil, it doesn't just wash all the soil away and all the nutrients in the soil. It actually stays there and you can build another crop or you can grow another crop the next year. Again, a really fascinating documentary that actually sparked that interest is called My Biggest Little Farm. And it tells the story of a farmer who, um, who was actually previously a cinematographer, but who then becomes a farmer and he buys a piece of land that's completely stripped of anything um, that represents growth. It's, it's almost a desert. And through regenerative farming, he brings that land back into this oasis of growth. There's fruit, there's vegetables, um, there's animals living on that farm, and they all live in harmony. And whenever there's a problem occurring on that farm, the solution is never anything produced by mankind. The solution is always within nature. And that's so beautiful, and it always, always works. And I think that's a really good example. And of course, it's a really romantic idea, because then you get into costs, et cetera, and into, into the space of land that they need. But it's, I think it should inspire us to think more mm -hmm. in tune with nature. I'm all for it. And, and desertification is a massive issue that we have. And it's only becoming worse and worse. And, and this soil that we once had that was nutritionally dense is being tilled so deep that that top soil layer is being blown away into the wind. And it becomes, like you said, just dry dirt. Soil becomes dirt and it's not, you can't do anything with that. We can go back. We can turn things around. It's not too late yet. And we can bring vegetation and health back to these lands that have no more soil on them. So I also watched this hour-long YouTube lecture called The Rules That Govern Life on Earth by an evolutionary biologist. His name is Sean B. Carroll. And he kind of brushed the surface on that and dug into how important healthy land is and healthy animals are for our own lives. I think this kind of ties back into something called the Serengeti rules. You actually explained to me the other night and in layman's terms real quick, what is what are the Serengeti rules? Yeah, again, exactly. As you said, so we can revive those ecosystems that we destroyed so the serengeti rule talks about that about restoring ecosystems we can restore those ecosystems by reintroducing all of the elements that were part of that cycle an example of that rule is um, a section of the ocean where you have a really healthy environment and uh, there was a scientist who removed just a starfish from that piece of the ocean and suddenly because of the removal of the starfish the population of mussels increased and because of that, all other species vanished because you had a lack of algae and food for all the other smaller fish. And it was a desert. It was completely stripped of life. Just because we removed the starfish, 
and that whacks everything else out of proportion. And again, that applies to so many different things. There's another famous example um, at the Yellowstone National Park where wolves were stripped from that ecosystem. And again, the entire ecosystem collapsed. But then the rule is that if you reintroduce those animals, so if you reintroduce the starfish, if you reintroduce the wolves, you get that life back and you get it back flourishing and well. And that applies to soil. It applies to, um, to our body. And we just have to make choices, I think, that influence or that motivate people to bring back the entire ecosystem. It really just goes to show how integral each species is in our society and nothing is useless. I mean, you think about, let's say, seahorses, you know, those little cute little seahorses in the in the ocean. Yeah. You think what in the world? What's the point of those? But I mean, if you just watch one episode of Planet Earth, you will be amazed, fascinated how each animal has its own distinct purpose in life. And that is intertwined into another species way of life and food chain. And it's just it's all it all applies into that holistic approach. If we all become more aware that we are basically harming ourselves by continuing the way we are. It's more than just awareness, though, Julius, like we can become aware, but how do people actually take action on this knowledge? I mean, it's yeah, nature is so clever. I think it's so fascinating how well established all the concepts of nature are. And I think in all of science, we've only scratched the surface of that. Um, So how can people change that or how can people influence um, that in their own lives? We... I think it brings us back to microbes because that's really what we have in our own body, in our own gut. And I think they're so undervalued. Um, One example that actually makes it quite clear, I think, is let's take yogurt, for example, such a simple product that's been around for ages. Um, But recently we changed our idea of yogurt and we started processing yogurt and we're seeing changes in our microbe system because of those changes in yogurt. So if you take Greek full fat yogurt, it's something that has 10% fat in, its, in the product. So people don't really desire it if they are cautious of their calorie or fat intake. It's full fat. Yeah, like stay away from that. I got to gotta be on a diet. Exactly. But then there are studies that show that one group who consumes full fat yogurt and the other group who consumes 0% fat yogurt, the group with the full fat Greek yogurt actually loses more weight over a certain period of time than the other wow. group. And why is because- that? It's, yeah. Well, I'm just going to take a guess because those those natural microbes and positive bacteria stripped from the yogurt. So then what good is it in the first place? Exactly. So you have so many beaming bacteria. And I think that's also we, we villainize bacteria. Why are, why are bacteria so bad? 99% of bacteria are actually good for us. Two kilo of our body weight are microbes, are bacteria. Two kilos. We just can't see them because they're so tiny. But they do so much work for us. In our body, when we when we consume food, we don't actually take in the nutrients. It's the microbes work to do that for us. They translate the food into the nutrients that we need in our gut, in our body and in our brain. So without our microbes, we can't do that. So we really have to look after them. And the yogurt is just one example. It goes over so many different things. Um, probi- probiotic food, anything that has living bacteria in it is so good for our microbes. Uh, another example is the French paradox. Have you heard about that? I have. Yeah. So the French paradox, why, why is there's a country or a nation with a diet that consumes quite a lot of dairy, which is rich in fat and meat and drinks a lot of wine. How can it be that their 
health is better than in another country like um, the UK or in America. And it's a lot of that is linked to the microbes again. The, a lot of the cheese that is consumed in France is rich in microbes and bacteria mm -hmm. because it's raw milk cheese. It's not treated. It's mm -hmm. not processed. It's left with all the natural benefits in there. So when we consume it, those microbes go into our body and we have a much more diverse microbiome. And once we have a more diverse microbiome, the microbes break down the food for us differently. So if we consume food and we have a very diverse microbiome, we actually extract more nutrients from the food we eat. It's fascinating. It's so cool. Processed foods are killing us. It's honestly, yeah. I mean, we're stripping all of the nutrients, everything that's good for us, out of the food. And we're basically having empty calories. We're not only doing that, we also, we don't have any microbes left in our gut. So we're doing two massively bad things for our body. So what um, are we giving to our body then? Like what, you know, it's like, think about how even in the last 10 years, the amount of dairy insensitivities or what's it called? Uh, yeah, dairy intolerances and gluten intolerances have just exploded. What do you think that's linked to? I mean, you even said it yourself back in the Titanic times, these allergies were not prevalent. And all of a sudden we've had several decades of pumping chemicals onto our produce and ridding the soil of any nutritional benefits. And now we have all these processed foods and that's all we're consuming. And we can even buy organic produce and it's not even nutritionally dense. So it's like, no wonder we have all these issues with our bodies. Yeah, I think, I mean, to your question, I think it's linked to three major things at the moment. Number one is exactly as you said, it's processed food, which is basically dead food. We, we can take vegetables and make them shelf stable for months in a pre-made ready to eat meal, but it doesn't have any nutrients left anymore. So it doesn't really do anything good to our microbes, which is so important. I think the other really big factor is antibiotics. We can see that there's a lot of studies that have been done on antibiotics which kill bacteria, that's their purpose. They kill bacteria, but not only the bad bacteria. So again, 99% of the bacteria in our body are actually good for us, they're important for us, they're important for our health. But when we take antibiotics, a large group of those bacteria are killed off. Obviously, antibiotics can be important to fight certain diseases, but we have to be really careful with them. And the problem is, I think, that we consume antibiotics sometimes without knowing it because it's fed to cattle. And it's in their mm. food and it's in, because of the cattle, it's in the manure. And because of the manure, it's again in the soil Your that soil. we grow vegetables. I mean, it's endless, so you can't escape it anymore. Bacteria, uh, sorry, antibiotics are fed to fish in, um, in, in fish farms and it leaks into the open ocean. So any fish we eat might have a particle of antibiotics in there, which then again affects our microbes. And once we have that happen, once we have a less diverse microbiome, that's when we see an increase in food allergies. So what we really have to try to fight is the less diverse microbiome. We have to get a more diverse nutrition and a nutrition that supports a microbiome that is healthy and diverse to fight those allergies. My goodness, it's like a never ending circle and we don't know how to make it square again. It sounds, it sounds I mean, it sounds so dark, but in the, in the end, um, again, Pete, people like, Lee Jones are doing the right thing. They're growing food in a soil that is healthy. And I think it's so exciting to seek out those producers to understand why certain things are bad for us. And I do think we have to stay away from processed food just because also 
it's such a recent thing. There are so many things in processed foods that we don't really know much about because it, yeah. it is a recent invention. So things like preservatives have been tested for food safety, but when they're being tested, they're being tested for diseases like cancer. Yeah. They're not being tested for something that we only recently discovered, which is the importance of our microbes. So nobody really knows how much impact they have on our microbiome and how much they destroy of that. So I think until we really clear on that, we have to try to steer back towards a more natural way of eating, which can be so, so exciting because the more you dive into that, for example, let's take the example of raw cheese. There's always a producer behind that who invests his life work into making a product perfect. And you will taste that. You will taste the entire process that went into there, the, um, the years of knowledge in a product that is just utterly delicious. That's where food can be so exciting. And I think, yeah, we have to support that. Totally. You know, just like I said earlier, we, there's, there's still hope. We're not doomed. But for many years now, we've been saying if we keep heading in this direction, then we are doomed. Like there, there comes a point of no return. And we're in that critical stage in life and in the health of our environment and our own bodies where we need to act critically. We have a lot of activists and people who have non-for-profit organizations and all sorts of great projects they have going on to better the environment and to focus on these things and who are spreading the word and who are helping farmers. But I don't know, Julius, I think it has to start with us and we need to make sure we're supporting the right farmers. You know, are we continuing to buy produce that is on the grocery store shelf from massive companies or are we going to support people, the little people? And this is like a recurring thing that keeps being brought up in my episodes, but it's just, I mean, that kind of is a sign that it's important. Yeah, definitely. I think Dan Barber, from Blue Hill Restaurant gets up right. Do you know him? Of course, yeah. He Because he calls it the third plate and he says we have to approach food differently. We have to think differently of how we make food choices because um, in our previous food choice, we had a prime cut of meat and we had a very small side of vegetables. And that is how we've been eaten for a really long time. But the third plate comes in and that's where we have a second grade cut of meat. So we're using much more of the animal. But really what we're hearing is the vegetable and the way it's grown. And that gives us such a more diverse diet. I think the massive problem is also mass production. I mean, so much of our food revolves still around meat and dairy and the way it is produced is just not sustainable. And I think that's where we see massive impacts, negative impacts on everything um, we're trying to sustain. So yeah, I think it's food choices really that will inform that. So as you say, we all have to do our part to um, reconsider to. the way we eat. Yeah, there, thankfully, we do have a lot of industry leading people like Dan Barber and Farmer Lee and many, many more that I'm sure will be brought up in the course of these topics. But I, I just think that reaching even reaching out to these people is so beneficial to us, just creating a relationship and learning, educating ourselves. And that's really what everything comes down to is educating ourselves. How are we supposed to know not to buy processed foods if, if we think that it's okay to eat? You know, it's, it's cheap. So we're able to feed ourselves and it tastes good to people. So how are we supposed to know? You know, we just need to be educated. And that's really what it comes down to. Yeah, I think the exciting thing, though, is that the education is just, it can be really fun when it comes to food. 
I think for, personally, for me, definitely, the more you learn about food, the more you get passionate about certain flavors and the more you get experimental with it and you, the more you seek out new flavors. So once you start that process, it's really rewarding. So yeah, it, I think you're right. We should definitely get learn and educate ourselves about the food that we're eating, but it can be a really enjoyable process. Totally. I think that's the most fun part for me with podcasting is, you know, I don't really consider myself as an educator. Others might, and that's fine. But really, I don't have a problem with that because our entire society is built off of education. It's the future. And really, the only way we can make change is by being educated. So we need more people to, to do that, to lead the ropes. So I really appreciate you giving us all your knowledge. And I mean, I've already learned a ton based off what you said. Well, that's great. I mean, honestly, I, this is just something that, that I learned quite recently. So it's just, I mean, there's so much more. So yeah, let's, let's, all, let's all get more of an understanding around it and um, make better choices. Completely. Thank you so much, Julius. Is there anything left you'd like to say or give a shout out to, to your girlfriend or, or whoever <laughs> toots your fancy? Go for it. Maybe we should try the, um, the, the catch line again with a bit more oh, excitement. Oh, yes, yes. Now, now give me it. Give it, give it your oh, all. Oh, God, the okay. pressure is on. But it's really hard to just, just say that one word. Actually, it's quite hard to say it in an enthusiastic way. But anyway. And, and, um, and unfortunately, we can't see your, your body spazzing either because that's what really brings the videos together. Brilliant. Okay, I'll try it. Wunderbar. I mean, yeah, wunderbar is German for wonderful. And, you know, honestly, I think that's what food is all about. It is full of wonders. And um, the more we get excited about it, the more we understand that. So, yeah, it's wonderful. I always thought it was wunderbar with a V because it sounds yeah. like that, but it's with a B. It's, yeah, it's, it's with a B, actually. It's, so it's wunderbar. 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 Wonderful. Wunderbar. Wunderbar, that's it. <laughs> Okay, I'm done. But... <laughs> it sounds like a Pokemon now. There you have it, food splainers. Another one in the books. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Food Splainer. I really appreciate all your support thus far. And remember, you can always go to foodsplainer.com. I've got some zesty blogs on there and some food poems and other fun stuff that is there for your enjoyment. And of course, if you like what you hear, please give a five-star review. I would greatly appreciate it. And you can leave a couple words if you'd like. Till next time. <laughs>